You may be seated. I had the uh, great privilege this week of uh, talking with Fashad. We're studying together regularly, and um, it's such a privilege for me. And um, one of the things we talked about relates to the song we just finished singing about the, the light we find in Jesus. Fashad will share his testimony in the weeks to come with you as a church, and he'll describe to you how Christ has transformed him, changed him um, into being a child of God. And we'll celebrate that day, and we'll have a baptism, and um, it'll be a glorious day. Um, And I look forward to it. But in the description, you know, I won't take his old testimony. I'll let him share it. He says, it was as if I'd always known these things. When he, when he describes how he came to believe in Christ. When he heard the gospel preached here and mainly from Janet White in her office, explaining to him scripture, answering questions, he said, it's as if I'd known it all my life. He uses the phrase, the light. Shown in my heart. And that is, a, that is a familiar feeling for those who are in the faith. If you're in the faith today, you can probably think back, maybe not to an exact day or time or date or in the calendar or something like that, but it, there's a period in your life where the light turned on in your heart. And it was as if you had always known these things. But... It was just so familiar is what he means. It's just like it's the only thing that could be right. It was you were convinced in your heart. And that song beckons you to come to Jesus so that you can have him and the 10,000 charms that come with him. But I want to say uh, what we were so, so delighted to see for shot is his face just lit up. We were looking at why come why did you come because god changed your heart and you came he gave you a desire that you did not have previously we talked about baskin robbins and i shared with him my favorite flavor at baskin robbins is very berry strawberry I can't tell you why that is, but my wife can testify. It does not matter how many times we go to the counter at Baskin-Robbins. I can sample other things, but eventually I am always going to buy very, very strawberry. It tastes the best to me. As Fashad says, it is the best. (laughs) It is. With a lot of gusto. Now, to my wife, peanut butter chocolate, or chocolate peanut butter is the best. Why? Does she like chocolate peanut butter and I like strawberry? Why? Don't get too radical. Her taste buds, given to her by God, tell her stomach and her mind and her body that's the best thing. My taste buds, given to me by God, tell me very, very strawberry is the best thing. And what I'm telling you is, if you've been saved like Fashad has... God gave you spiritual taste buds to delight in Jesus Christ and in Him 
alone. And if He didn't give you those taste buds, you wouldn't delight in Him because your flesh says, this is foolishness. But that spiritual desire, that joy, that delight springs up. You can't control it. You can't stop it. You, you feel this urge to eat and sit and commune at His table all the time. Fashad gave a better example, I think. He said, you know, before I came to Christ, Sunday was for sleeping. Because of the time difference between here and Iran, when he wants to talk to his family or his friends back there, he has to do it at night and stay up. I think last night he told me he was going to go home after work and talk from 1230. That's when he was going to talk. And I'm thinking, I'll be asleep, you know. And so, logically, Sunday morning was for sleeping. But he said, when I came to Christ, now I want to come to church. I love church more than I love sleep. I love hearing God's Word more than I love sleep. Why? That's not natural. That comes only from God through the Spirit to you. And I'm describing what is common for you that are saved, aren't I? I really am. You physically don't want the things of Christ, but... Your spiritual taste buds have been given to you by God so that you might eat very, very strawberry and love it. <laughs> and, and, and so the truth, uh, uh, um, Augustine called it, God has given us a sovereign joy in Christ. A sovereign joy. We didn't choose it. God chose it for us and gave it to us. And oh, how thankful I am that His grace rained down on this wretch and gave him the taste for the spiritual things. I also want to call your attention to our new additions on our missions flags. We have Albania. We've had it for some time. And Rob Provost and I talk often. And he is laboring away in Tirana there in Albania and uh, the capital city, and their church is growing by leaps and bounds, and so we're thankful for that. And you're a part of that work. People are being saved in Albania because you are faithful to the Lord here in the United States, and you don't see them, but one day you will see them, whether it's in Albania on a mission trip or if it's in heaven, you will see them at the throne of Christ because God saved them as He has saved you, and He is giving you the blessing of being a part of that work. Uh, Mexico and Papua New Guinea flags are displayed now. David Sitton, to every tribe ministries. We Now you are supporting his mission to those who are unreached, those who have never heard the gospel. And there may be opportunities in the future for you to see these people being reached for the first time with the gospel. But even if you never see them here, there's a new church now on the Isle of Men uh, off the coast of Mexico. A new church of just a few believers who have believed and have come to faith in Christ. And so you are part of that new church by an extension of your giving resources to this church and us supporting them. You are supporting them. And I'm asking you to pray for them. Pray for Rob Provost. Pray for David Sitton. If you can't remember the countries, Albania, Mexico, Papua New Guinea. And then we have our flag here, the United States. And although I'm very patriotic, that... We're not displaying it for patriotism. If you notice, we didn't display it higher than all the other flags because we're not drawing attention to patriotism. We're drawing attention to the fact that our churches in the United States and our ministry through campus outreach 
is in mainly, primarily in this area of the United States. And so you are involved in a gospel work in Jacksonville State, uh, West Georgia, Shorter College in some, right? I'm not, I'm not missing, I hope. And uh, uh, what's our other area? Sa- uh, no, our area. Barry. I knew there was another. Barry, Shorter, West Georgia, and um, Jacksonville State. And now you support Sanford's ministry through supporting Nikki McClellan. And uh, you support uh, Louisiana through, um, uh, my mind's going to go back, Jill and Casey Williamson and their ministry at Southeast Louisiana. And so you are supporting the gospel being preached on campuses and on, in countries and in tribes around the world. Um, and you've never left home, but you're doing that. And so I want to thank you for that and remember them in prayer and pray often for them and look for new banners, new flags. They'll hopefully be adding to uh, these things. Before we uh, get started, I want to give background here. We read Romans 6, 1 through 4, and that is our text for today. So you can turn there. We're before the celebration of Easter and Holy Week. We were in John 1, 24 through 34. We looked at baptism according to John, understanding John the Baptist's act of baptism. What was he doing? And we came and wrestled over the facts. And we came to the understanding that baptism is identification with something. And in this case, it's Christ. We're identifying with Christ. And also, let me be clear, Christ was identified by John the Baptist. John came to identify Jesus, and he identified Him through baptism. Um, John says in verse 29 of chapter 1, he identifies Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he goes on in there to say that the Father told him, whoever the Spirit descends on like a dove and remains with Him, He is the Lamb of God. He is the Messiah. And John says, I testify in verse 34. I give witness to, I testify to the fact that, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So uh, baptism was for identification, right? We're clear on that. Today I want us to expand our understanding of the importance of baptism because you may say, what's the significance in our day and why should we baptize people who are believers? And give you, I want to give you some practical implications of this doctrine probably next week. This is going to be a two-part message. So we're in Romans 6, 1 through 4. The text has been read, so we're going to move into the message. The importance of baptism, first of all. The importance of baptism, if you're taking notes. The basic outline of this paragraph of Scripture is this. This is what Paul is arguing. Christ died to sin. He argues that in verses 8 through 10. Christ died to sin. Number two, we died with Christ. Verses 3 through 7 say, We died with Jesus Christ. Ver, uh, number 3, Therefore we died to sin. And that's the conclusion he comes to in, in verse 2. I believe the argument is backwards. We do this in writing. We save the, you know, we save the, 
first point till the end and we write in reverse order. We often do this for emphasis. The emphasis is in this passage, Christ died to sin. Then secondarily, we died with Christ. He's emphasizing that. And then finally, if we died, because we died with Christ would be a better conditional. Because we died with Christ, we died to sin. Okay, that's the argument from 2 through uh, 10. Now that we have an outline of our paragraph, I want to give the overall argument in, in our terms. How, what was Paul doing? Paul is emphasizing the experience of the believer at conversion and the life that follows conversion in this text. He's saying, we've been converted and this is our life after conversion. Paul also goes on to show that we have been transformed transferred from the dominion or the rule of sin to the dominion or the rule of grace now that we've been saved. We've been transferred, moved from one to another. And then finally, Paul gives us a mandate to live in light of our transfer from sin to grace. We've got to live our lives as if we have been transferred from sin to grace. Not only have we been done it theologically, but practically. We've got to live differently because we've been changed, transformed, transferred. The use of baptism in this passage, because this is a debated point. Um, some evangelical scholars do not believe that baptism, water baptism, is in view here at all. Okay? And their argument is based on the fact that baptism is so tightly and so closely tied to being buried with Christ and raised from the dead, they're afraid that if we talk about water baptism here, then we will give a wrong impression. And that impression is that we are saved by being baptized. Okay? I disagree with them. I believe with a majority of scholars that baptism is by water here, being spoken about by water. Baptism by water is being talked about in this passage and I'll show you why it's important to hold to that because the scripture is very adamant very clear linguistically grammatically we can't hold to anything else and hold to the word for word uh, from the original language we have to believe it's talking about this Paul introduces to us the rite of baptism in verse 3 look at verse 3 Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? He introduces the idea here. But but let's understand that He's not only introducing it, but He is emphasizing for us the conversion initiation process. Conversion initiation process that was held by universally throughout the church at the writing of this letter. People are converted, people are initiated. Okay? All right. Paul has two types of baptisms in view. First of all, conversion, which is spirit baptism. You were baptized in the Spirit of God at conversion. And I do not deny that Paul is speaking about that conversion and that baptism, the Spirit, in this text. He is saying that. But that's not all that he's saying. He goes on to say that there is a type of baptism, which is water baptism, which mediates for us our death, our burial, our resurrection with Christ. It is a mediatorial office the baptism holds. It is 
um, not a sacrament, but it is an ordinance established by Jesus Christ to identify us, to initiate us into the church publicly. And he's talking about both here. And the language will make that very clear. So let's look at the meat of the text. Let's walk through it together so we'll have clear understanding. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul uses rhetorical questions as a way of arguing his point in the book of Romans. If you've ever read the book of Romans or studied the book of Romans, you see this often. In Romans 3 verse 1, 5, 9. In Romans 4 verse 1. In Romans 6, 15, 7. Verse 7, Romans 9, 14, 20, I mean 19, 22, in verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 1, 7, and 11. All of these places he asked these same questions. What then shall we say? Or, if this is true, then what? He argues his point. He's building a case. It's not someone asking Paul a question. It's Paul asking himself the question that he knows is in others' mind. And then he answers it for them. Paul is emphasizing the counter-argument in the presentation of salvation by grace alone throughout the book. He's emphasizing the counter-argument. In other words, he's arguing for grace, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, that comes to us through the Scripture alone. He's making that argument through Romans, throughout Romans. But he's giving us the counter to that argument right here in, li- in living person with us, So that when our mind, flesh, rears up, what about this question? He's already asked the question. He anticipates. It's phenomenal to me. I believe if you held these questions out, every lost person would ask these types of questions. It may not sound identical, but it will be about these things. Paul argues grace is the way way we're saved, by grace. And immediately, I believe, lost people say, well, great, then I can sin. Paul begs the question, gives an answer, no, no. That's not true, and this is why. And so, throughout the book, he he argues this way. It's fascinating. Christ, uh, here, we're asking the question. Here in the first part, what then shall we say? It references us back to 5 verse 20. Look back with me at 5 verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded and right here, if you just read that, you would think, oh, that means I can sin. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is referencing us back in verse 1 to five twenty and 21 in the first question. What shall we say then? If grace is the key, then can I just live however I choose to live? So the grace can abound. Oh, I'm only going to sin so God can give me more grace. One theologian said, uh, it's God's pension or desire to forgive me, so it's my pension or desire to sin. This is the argument that some people take. Oh, I've got to sin so God can be shown as gracious. But Paul answers that question quickly by asking another question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The second question gives him a platform to dive off into his explanation of how the Christian is dead to sin in Christ. He's setting his argument up. He's begged the question. Now he's setting his argument up. Now the rest of our text is answering the second question. Are we saved to sin 
Or is there another purpose? Should we be able to live in sin now that we're saved? Paul answers in verse 2. Look at it. By no means. Absolutely not. Certainly not. Your text might say certainly not. As if that would be to believe something that is so false and so far from the truth that it's ridiculous to even think that way. Paul seems to be saying, this is totally absurd that you would even think this is absurd. By no means, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? This is the classic answer Paul gives to all of these questions when you read them in no matter what chapter. It's, he asks the question and he says, by no means, certainly not. No way. It can't be. May it never be. You hear him answering these questions all through the text. He's emphatic with his answer. He doesn't want to leave any room for doubt. In case you get lost in my jargon of theology down later in the argument, understand this. You are not have license to sin because you've been saved by grace. He answers it quickly. Now he's going to expound on it. And I think the expansion of this gives us freedom and it gives us knowledge and a wealth of love for our Savior. To better understand Paul, we can turn this question into a statement of fact. Paul is saying, we have died to the power of sin, so it is impossible for us to live in sin any longer. You understand? We've died to it, so we cannot live in it any longer. It's not that we might or might not. It's not a wishful thought. It's you cannot live in sin anymore. You've been saved from it. You've been delivered from it. You've died to it. So, obviously, we would ask, well, then why do I sin? Am I expected now that I'm a believer and converted to just never sin anymore? And I would give the same answer he gives uh, to his question. No, certainly not. You're going to sin. You're going to fail. There will be times of failure in your life. What Paul is trying to say is that the believer cannot, by a pattern of his life, notice the text there when he answers, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Live in it. Not just occasionally sin. Not just have struggles with sin, but live as a way of life in sin. I can give you this statement of warning and a check to see if you are in Christ or not. If you can sin continuously with no check, no conviction, no calling you out of that sin into a life of righteousness, if you can live in sin day in and day out with no conviction in your soul, there is question whether you are in the body of Christ. Because you are dead to sin and you cannot live in it this way. A pattern of life. 1 John, if, if you want an expansion of this thought, 1 John's all about this. 1 John explains this uh, better than I could in days. I mean, it's so clear that he's not saying you can't ever make a mistake. He's saying you cannot live in mistakes. You cannot live in sin any longer. Your desires have been changed. You're dead to this sin and now you're alive to God and so you want the things of God, not the things of sin. That's what he's arguing here. So those outside of Christ are ruled by sin and those inside Christ are ruled by righteousness. He makes that argument later in chapter 6, verse 15 through 23. We're ruled by righteousness. So we come to the third verse. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? 
Now, Paul is making a profound argument, and you and I need to catch this. If we don't catch anything else, we need to understand this. Death to sin is part and parcel with becoming a Christian. Let me repeat that. Death to sin is part and parcel. It is the whole. It is part of our salvation. It is the result of our entire salvation that we are dead to sin now. That's why I can say confidently, if you can live in sin with no compulsion to live in godliness, you need to really back up and examine your life. Are you in Christ? If you can even go down the road of, I'm going to sin so grace can abound. Paul would say, you need to question where you are. Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? Not that you've had the thought, but that you can go down the road with that theological thought. That you could see it as a good alternative in life. I've met people this way. That, that, that they brag about their ability to sin because they're saved. And this is an illogical argument. It's an illogical argument. So, let me say that. First and foremost. But by opening this verse with the words, do you not know, Paul is making it clear that what he is saying is a basic belief of the Roman Christians. It's basic. It's introductory. It's elementary. What he's saying here is not complicated. It's simple to them. You should know this. You should be in this argument. You should already know the answer to these questions. But why does Paul qualify baptism with the phrase, into Christ Jesus? You see it there? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, there it is, were baptized into His death? Some believe that this is just shorthand for Paul's more frequent phrase, into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what the text says. If we look at the text and we understand it grammatically, he's not saying a shorthand phrase. He is saying we were baptized into union with Christ. That's what he's literally saying. Do you not know that we were baptized into union with Christ? It's a much more significant argument that he's making. So he says, like he says in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've been placed into Christ. You've been identified with Christ. You've been made like Christ. You stand before the Father in Christ. You've lost your individualism and now you are in Christ. This is what he seems to be arguing. So he brings up the question, buried with Christ in baptism in verse 4. Verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. And this is a conclusion of us being in Christ. We are in Christ, therefore we have been buried with Christ. Therefore, Paul is arguing that Christian baptism by joining the believer with Christ Jesus also joins him with the death of Christ. Christian baptism, unlike other forms of baptism. As a matter of fact, this word baptizo that we're dealing with here in this text, the Greek word is a Christianized word. Nobody understands it any other way except a Christian baptism. In the ancient world, to say baptism was to talk about Christians. It was one and the same. 
And what does he mean by baptism? That we're identified in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And I believe, and I believe the text will support, I'll show you, water baptism. We're identified not only in the conversion, but in our, in our initiation. Both. We get both when we come into the church. And both are needful. Both are helpful. Both are a part of our lives. We were buried, therefore, with Him, verse 4, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul draws a conclusion from the believer being incorporated into the death of Christ. If we have died with Christ through baptism, then we have also been buried with Him through baptism, which is unto His death. We've been put into His death. And this burial not only marks the end of an old life, but it also is part of the transition to a new life, which the believer is now called to walk in at the end of verse 4. Walk in newness of life. We too might walk in newness of life. So, it is a mark of the new life, and it is a mark of the end of the old life. Baptism is significant through the Spirit and through the water. Both are significant to bring us to this transition this clause raises three controversial questions. Why was, has Paul introduced the image of burial? What is the meaning of the Christian being with Christ? How does baptism mediate this being with Christ? Well, I want to give you three broad arguments made by people. And you may fall into one of these categories, and I'll tell you which one I fall into. All of this understanding is necessary. If you're ever going to understand baptism, why do we baptize people? You've got to understand this text. It's not minor. It's not a minor thing. It's very important. You lose the point of baptism if you don't understand Romans 6, 1 through 4. Your baptism will mean much more to you once you understand this. Many evangelicals understand burial, burial with Christ. Evangelical means... They preach the gospel. They believe in the gospel of Christ. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Many of them believe that it's a metaphor for the believer's complete break with an old life and view baptism as symbolic picture of the transfer from the old life to the new life. Baptism by immersion is the best picture, they argue, for this transaction. Submersion, placing a person under, is burial. And immersion is raising them to new life. The only problem with the argument, well, there's a couple, but one problem is, is that nowhere in the New Testament do we see support for this symbolic nature of baptism, the mode of baptism and the dunking and the raising. We, do, we don't see that in the New Testament. The second problem is that with this view, we cannot deal with the text, which uses the preposition with. You see it there? You've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. A symbolic view doesn't deal with this with. How were we buried with Christ? And how are we raised with Christ? What is this? What are, what are we trying to learn from Paul? Why is he talking about this? It's a huge stretch of the language to make this mean that we were buried in our lives as Christ was buried in His life. It, you, you were not practically buried like Jesus was buried. None of you have lived in a cave, dead for three days, and been raised from the dead. You, 
you were not buried with Christ in this life. I, I didn't die when I was converted and then live in the grave three days and be brought back. But that's what the preposition with in this context and Bible grammar tells us it has to mean. And it's just not true. So the symbolic view, the purely symbolic view that's held by many can't be the understanding here. A second way of relating burial and baptism is as in the first view... We take burial as a metaphor for the believer's complete break with the old life, but understand baptism as the mediator of that break, the go-between. This interpretation suffers from the same grammatical errors as the first one. You still can't deal with what he means with Christ, buried with Christ. What does this mean? Why did Paul write it this way? A third, and I believe best interpretation of this scripture is that burial with Christ is a description of the participation of the believer in Christ's own burial. And this participation is mediated or brought to us live and in color when we immerse people and do the symbol. Now, Paul is connecting some things here that I have to give you. This is where it brings so much significance to our understanding of baptism. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. This, I think, identifies us with Christ, and we were actually buried with Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because what? All sinned. Okay. Adam sinned. Does anybody believe if you'd been in the garden, you could have done something different than Adam? Go ahead. Any takers? We'll put you back to innocence. Do you think you wouldn't have sinned? Made a better decision. I'll do this. I'll even give you all the knowledge of the New Testament. You think you could do better? Any takers? None. You know why you won't take it? Because we actually sinned with Adam. It's not that Adam sinned and then he transferred sin to us. It's that when Adam sinned, Carlton Weathers sinned. Aaron Acker sinned. Rod Campbell sinned. Amado Ortiz sinned. The best among us sinned when Adam sinned. All of us did with him. We actually ate the fruit as Adam ate the fruit with him. That is in Romans 5. And then he says, those who are in Christ, there are delivered from this body of sin. In Romans 5, he makes the argument that there are those who are with Adam and there are those who are with Christ. That's the federal position I gave you last time, that Christ will either be your federal representative before God or Adam will be. Either you will remain in Adam and in sin and die in that sin and face judgment, or you will be under Christ, seen in Him free from sin because He was free from sin. Why? Why? Because for the believer, when Christ died, you died with Him. When Christ was buried, you were buried with Him. When Christ was raised, you were raised with Him to new life. Do you see how significant a passage this really is? We don't look back at the cross as a point in history and say, Oh, that's what happened to Jesus as if it's some forensic thing that we can cut ourselves from. No, if you're in Christ, 
You were there with Him in the cross. You were there with Him in the grave and you were raised from the dead. Paul makes that abundantly clear in resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 because he says, just as He was raised from the dead, you are raised from, you will be raised from the dead. What is he banking, vouchsafing that on? I said last week he's vouchsafing that on the promise of God in Christ because we were raised from the dead in Christ. See, we are identified as the believer in Christ. In everything, we are identified in Christ. It's, it's easy to make the mistake of moving away from the grammar. It's easy to make the mistake of make this baptism is just symbolic view. But that's not what it says. What is the exact time or nature of the believer being buried with Christ? It would be easy to say that that was historically when it happened to Jesus. But we're forced to accept that what Paul is saying is not bound by time as we see it. Paul makes reference to our life experience in this chapter. Look at verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's you're living now. That's a reference to their life, their experience, their practice. Verse 14, he says, uh, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's your practical life. He's talking about practical life. Verse 17 through 22, he makes the same argument. But then he also backs up and talks about a historic event in Christ's death on the cross in verse 6 and verse 10. So what do we do? When were we buried, die with Christ, buried with Christ, raised from the dead? When did that happen? It leaves us to believe that this is a category that transcends time. We do experience the transfer from the old life to the new life at conversion. But in God, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. With God, we are not, God is not experiencing dated time a continuum of linear time as we are. He is above it, transcendent to it. And He sees us in Christ redeemed, already glorified before Him. And so we are in Christ, already buried and resurrected. Already. It's already done. It's complete. We're finished. We're free. Why can He make the argument? How can you live in sin? Because He says you've already been raised from the dead. You've already been raised to a new life. How can you go back to the old life? It's dead. That'd be like going back to the morgue and looking at your old corpse and dealing with it and holding it and, and, and trying to make it act, moving it around. It's dead, he says. And when you sin, you're literally going back to that old man and trying to force your old dead corpse to do things. that you. That's why it's so unnatural for Christians to sin. That's why there's so much pain involved in sin, because it's going back to an old life that we know is dead, logically and theologically, but practically we're dragging that dead man along every step of the way, and we can't rid ourselves of it in time. But in God's time, we're already free. We're in Christ, set free to live a life free of sin. And so he says, how can you live in sin? It's dead. You have a new life. That's why he argues in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. How can he make these statements if what I'm arguing isn't true? We died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We are raised from the dead. When do we experience that, Carlton? Is there a point in time when you become a Christian? In our thinking, absolutely we do. For me, it was when I was five years old. 
I came to understand what it meant to be adopted into the family of God by Jesus Christ's permission and His authority. I was adopted into the family. And so I understood that and I cried out to the Father, I want this, I desire it because you've given me this desire. And so I experienced it in time. But am I to think that God didn't know I would be saved until I decided to be saved? That would be silly. God knows. Why does he know? Because before the foundation of the world, he fashioned salvation and he fashioned it not object, not just as some vague object, but of his bride, which he was already placing in Christ. Paying the price, bearing, raising him. It's finished. That's why Jesus can say, it is finished. Because it's done. The bride is redeemed. And now we live in this life, a new life, set free from sin. And so we have the ramification of the conversion. But everyone who believes in spirit baptism only in this text would agree with everything I've said so far. But where they, where they would fall with me is, I believe he shifts from the old life to the new life. But that each believer experiences the transfer at conversion initiation. Why do I say that? Paul is inferring that the first church saw conversion by faith and water baptism as separate components of one experience, which is called conversion initiation. In other words, how are we saved? By baptism? No. We're saved by faith alone. If he argued we were saved by baptism, he would have to nullify his first four chapters. He would just have to throw them away because he clearly says we're saved by faith alone. So what is this? Well, I think we've probably done damage here too, and we, we lose it here in baptism because for the first church, identification was the purpose of baptism. Once you had faith, saving faith, they baptized you. You were converted and you were initiated into the body. Where do we see this? Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I understand? Let someone teach me. Philip gets in the carriage. He teaches in the scripture. He believes the scripture. He's converted by faith alone and he's baptized. Just like this. So why don't we do it that way? There's a myriad of reasons. That Ethiopian eunuch had more knowledge about the faith than many of those in the room. Many like me who didn't have it. So there is a problem there. There's just, I'm confessing it's difficult but if we were in Rome, in the day that Paul wrote this, we would understand conversion, initiation, in a way we don't understand it now. And faith is always assumed, listen to this thing, maybe this will help. Faith, I wrote this trying to make sense of my sermon. Faith is always assumed to lead to baptism. And baptism always assumes faith for its validity. In other words, faith always leads to baptism. Baptism is only valid because of faith. You're not saved by baptism. You're saved by faith. But if you have faith, you will be baptized. That's the assumption here. In verses 3 through 4, we can see that baptism is representative of the entire conversion experience. It is based on a true faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the question for Paul, for the one who is a believer and has not been baptized, would probably be, why haven't you been baptized? Salvation is by faith alone. Baptism is not required for a person to be saved. But logically, the conclusion of Paul is, why not be baptized? 
If you've been saved by the Spirit, baptized, why would you not be baptized? That would be his logical conclusion. Paul concludes his thoughts in verse 4 by saying, We too might walk in newness of life. We should be walking in the freedom of grace and living a righteous life by the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, what keeps us from sin if we believe in grace? Sin is dead to us who are in grace. The law could not kill sin, but grace does. And so, because we're dead to it, it's illogical to try to raise that corpse up and make it do things it should be dead to. Most of you have fellowship with your family, but you don't have fellowship with your dead family. I mean, you don't go back to the morgue when Aunt Sue's there 20 years later and say, Aunt Sue, let's have a conversation. It'd be illogical to do that. Be illogical. So we don't do it spiritually either. You've been a Christian 20 years, so the question you should ask the next time temptation is at your door and the opportunity of sin is today is, why would I want to go back and play with that corpse? It's dead. I'm free. I don't have to do it, so I won't do it. I'm set free in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often play with dead corpses, our dead corpse. We fellowship with dead corpses. We find our kinship with deadness. And it's a scary thought for me. Because it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Why? Why on earth would I do this? And the only answer I have is because this dead man, though he is dead, is still lagging around with me. This body of flesh that is dead, still drug around through this life, waiting on glorification. How else are we to understand, Lord, when you say that we are groaning, waiting for our glorification? Why would we be groaning if it wasn't painful to live this life where sin is being drugged around every day as a nuisance to us, as a, a continual reminder of our deadness before we were saved, of a continual reminder of our failure and our shortcoming? Oh, we groan, Lord Jesus, to say, cut us loose from this man of death. We want to be glorified. We want to be perfect as you are perfect in your likeness purified by your Holy Spirit who is groaning for us. What a great comfort it is that you are groaning for us when we don't know how to pray, you are praying. When we don't know how to confess and what to confess, you are pushing us to confess sin in our life and to avoid sin in our life. And so we thank you so much. And I pray that those gathered here would leave today energized to think of their spiritual conversion to think clearly that they have been brought into your death and burial and resurrection. And now they have a new life. So I pray that you would remind them constantly this week and remind me constantly this week when sin is at the door, may we remember, why would I ever go back to that dead life? That is dead. Why would I want to play with that corpse? So, Father, give us this desire for holiness that only you can give. And give us this desire for, com- uh, for being conformed into your image. And give us this want to 
of righteousness that comes from you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Next week we'll look at the practical...